Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 14th, 2021. I'm John Budhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I only have a few more days to ask you once again to consider commentary when you are thinking about your end of year giving. Commentary is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we are fortunate, grateful, and proud of the fact that we Uh, earn a lot of our own keep through uh, subscribers and advertising, but we do not earn all of our keep and we are therefore reliant on the generosity of our listeners and our readers to help us close our deficit and keep doing what we're doing with the same energy and enthusiasm that we have done it, that we have shown, you know, in, in over the course of the 76 years that commentary has been in business and, and also over the course of the last almost 20 months that we have been doing this podcast every day. So if you would please consider that, we would be very grateful. Go to www.commentary.org slash donate. That's www.commentary.org slash donate. And it is tax deductible. So that would be really great. And with me today, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Washington Commentary columnist, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon and scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and of course, the author of the forthcoming The Right, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. So, Matt, as our Washington Commentary columnist with unique perspective on the ins and outs and the doings and comings of Washington, what do you make of the revelations last night? pretty much through the mouth of Liz Cheney of the uh, emails uh, going back and forth between uh, Trump chief staff Mark Meadows and various figures in the Trump universe uh, on January 6th relating to the insurrection around the Capitol. Well, first, John, I like how you mentioned my unique perspective because I'm uh, talking to you from my uh, garret here in the, uh, you know, sub-basement of the American Enterprise Institute. And so I have to go up to the roof of AI to actually get the unique perspective on Washington that I try to bring to the pages of commentary. Or is the proper perspective of Washington. <laughs> right, right, right. It's kind of looking out onto the shaft. Yes. Um, but from, from this place, uh, I will say that uh, Mark Meadows' cell phone is now the most important object to art in uh, the nation's capital because... Um, is this tech- since Rosemary Woods' dictaphone? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you have to go back to uh, Nixon's secretary to, to find a similar kind of uh, um, uh, uh, museum piece uh, that, that's waiting for its place in history. So these text messages are, um, are pretty remarkable. I mean, in the, mo- in the, the, the ones that everyone is uh, talking about in the nation's capital are from um, either Trump family members, uh, such as Don Jr., uh, begging the president or begging Mark Meadows to get the president to, to do something uh, during the riot on the Capitol uh, on January 6th. And also from several Fox News Channel hosts. Um, and there, it's not only uh, a sign of how um, scared people were during those three hours uh, in which the, uh, the Capitol was um, under assault uh, uh, by, by a mob, um, but also kind of the hypocrisy of some um, Trump opinion leaders that uh, despite their worries in private about what was happening and their, uh, their calls on the, on the president's chief of staff to tamp down um, or to call for calm and peace on the Capitol, um, within hours, uh, or really within days, um, they had taken a completely different and revisionist line on what happened on January 6th. Right, so that would be Laura Ingram and uh, and Sean Hannity in particular. Yeah, Abe, and they turned that revisionist line into a movement. Um, it wasn't it wasn't just that they that we know they're lying because we, we now have the evidence of what their sentiments were at the time. Um, it's that they then um, sort of worked doggedly to make the exact opposite of the of what they knew to be the case the case. And the, the, the cynicism of that move, actually, uh, for, for a, a network in particular that, that prides itself on constantly pointing out the hypocrisy of the left, massive hypocrisy. And I think you're right, Abe. It did. They have rallied the troops around this idea that the whole thing was overblown. Meanwhile, when it was happening, they all knew very well what was going on and were begging for the 
for the president to acknowledge that things had gone too far and to call off these rioters, which he could have done. I mean, just the the, the sort of counterfactual of a lot of this leaves uh, uh, leaves it even more egregious to see what they're doing now, which is to make you know these documentaries about the poor victims of January 6th, the, the rioters themselves. Ridiculous. And that is what's important, <laughs> what you just said. Everybody knows that this was the reaction at the time, and everybody knows that they rationalized themselves into something, believing or saying that it was something more anodyne than it was. We all know that. But what these texts reveal at the time is that to a man, almost, or woman, they believed that Donald Trump had the capacity to intervene and to stop this, which implies that he had the capacity to start it. It's an expo- it exposes the extent to which they knew the president's complicity and had to work themselves into uh, some sort of alternative uh, theory of the case. Well, I have two. One thing is, some ways it's even worse than any of you guys are saying, essentially in relation to these outside people, because what uh, a couple of people said in these texts was he's got to do something. This is going to ruin his legacy. So it wasn't even he's got to do something because something evil is going on that threatens the very nature of our society. It's that this is going to look bad for him and then by extension us over time. So he better do something to nip it in the bud and therefore, you know, uh, give himself options for the future or whatever. So it's not even that what they did was they looked upon what was going on in horror and said it has to stop because this is not the country that we want to live in. It's like, do this. It's bad PR. It's bad PR for the Trump brand, which is 10 times worse. And obviously, but of course, made it a lot easier once it became clear that it wasn't as bad PR for the Trump brand as they had feared for them to sort of switch gears and go in another direction. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that what we see in these texts and what we see in um what we know about Meadows' behavior in the prior two weeks was that it was like a they were playing both sides. They were playing the insurrectionists in the sense that people were coming into the White House proposing cockamamie theories, including John Eastman and others about how the certification of the election or the, you know, the, the final, you know, nail in the coffin of the Trump hopes that somehow the election results could be challenged, reversed or whatever, um, uh, that there was a lot of traffic about this. There were emails, there were plans, there were PowerPoints, there were legal briefs, there was this, there was that. And rather than anybody, with the exception maybe of the people in in Pence's office or Mark Short in Pence's office saying, what are you people crazy? Go, go away. Go away now with your madness. Like this is I understand that the president really would like the election to have gone the other way and would like a magical formula to do it this otherwise. But I am still like the chief of staff at the White House and I've I've work to do. I have there's things going on. There's a pandemic and there's things go and I can't be bothered with your lunacy. Nobody was doing that from what we can tell. Nobody was saying as the steam was gathering on this insurrectionist right. Nobody was trying to calm them down, roll their eyes at them, tell them to stop say this is not going to happen, be a kind of reality check. And, uh, and, and so that's a sin of omission rather than the sin of commission. And ultimately, that's really going to be the, the, the question about whether there are long-term political consequences from any of this, which I kind of doubt, I have to admit, because you're never going to get an email, you're never going to get a text in which Meadows says, Go for it. You know, there's not going to be there's no I mean, you know, unless someone erased the 18 and a half minutes of of Mark Meadows phone like Rosemary Woods and the dictaphone. There's not going to be a smoking gun thing that says I did this, Matt. I've always thought we've had, you know, uh, all the evidence of what was going on playing out in real time. And it was clear really by end of December 2020 that Trump was trying to find a way to overturn the results of the election and remain in power. And you can have a semantic argument about what that constitutes. Is that a coup, as the liberal media describes it? Is it a autogolpe, which is my favorite, which is, I think, the technical term for when a 
ruler doesn't usurp power, but tries to remain in power. But it, this was playing out in real time. We saw this. We heard what Trump, we heard what Trump was doing. Excuse me. Um, and uh, I remember, I recall that at some point, I, I should find the date, when Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, visited the White House, and he came out uh, from a meeting with Trump, and uh, some intrepid photographer snapped a pic of his notes, and on the on the notes were written the words "martial law." <laughs> and like, so that was no secret that this was being discussed. And everything that's come out from the commission so far is just further proof of how um, involved the 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 president and his top aides were in in this question of figuring out how do we stop Joe Biden from taking power. And one of the lessons of um, of what we learned yesterday is everyone was bothered. By what happened on January 6th. Everyone, I think that was a moment that no one, even the ones involved in this kind of, well, can Pence um, refuse to certify the, the election? And does that, will that then trigger a series of events that could lead us to remaining in office? Um, even those people who were involved in that debate, they saw the ransacking of the Capitol and they were shocked and horrified, with one exception Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and so that just kind of shows well, there, you all you need to know about Trump after his after his election loss. Well, they were they were angry. They were angry, Matt. Yeah. Well, or, the, or they were to or they weren't. They anger. were they were tourists. That's they my were thing. angry. Well, they were angry ang- tourists. Yes. Well, I get annoyed Un- sometimes unable, as a tourist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They were you know they were they were unable to you know get into the. On the Empire State Building would, elevator before it closed, like they were say, angry uh, tourists, and therefore they tried to tear the Empire State Building down. And I agree with you, John, that the political consequences are probably negligible here because the movement that um, was described has been so successful in changing people's uh, perceptions of what happened on January sixth. However, you know there was one adverb that Cheney used in her statement, uh, which was uh, pretty striking. That was the word uh, "corruptly." Uh, in describing potential Trump actions. And uh, that, that adverb suggests that there, she is thinking anyway, and the committee may be thinking as well, of potential legal uh, charges against Trump, um, not only in, in, in regard to January 6th, but also, and this is still out there in the background, uh, regarding the call uh, that he made in December with, to uh, Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, where he was, you know, where he was saying, you know, Come up with the votes. All you need to do is say that there was fraud and then we can we can get this thing going here. I mean, it's interesting because then we get into the whole constitutional question of whether or not they can take ex post facto action against him uh, for actions taken as president. That's what the second impeachment was for, whether there's some I mean, I think they are laying the, the groundwork for a report in which the two Republicans on the committee, as well as the the Democrats, are going to say that Trump was materially involved in an effort to subvert, to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And here were the officials who worked for him, with him, and in the House and in the Senate who may have been complicit in this effort uh, based on the evidence that we have and that we've been able to get through these subpoenas. And then it will be up to the American people to judge. I mean, that, that's, that's really where it's going. And there is this question of these emails that are, as yet, I think the authors of the emails are, are, remain um, unknown to us. But uh, emails going to Meadows from people in the House in particular and the Senate saying, we're helpless in here. Uh, you've got to do something we're helpless. And my guess is that every single one of those people who sent whatever those emails were voted against impeachment and is now talking about how we you know we need election integrity, blah, 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 blah. I want to point out, I'm going to remind everybody again that the, you know, commentary has a reputation for having been, you know, hostile to Trump. We are this is commentary is a conservative magazine. All five of us are conservatives on this podcast. Uh, we are we have now spent, you know, 11 months uh, dissecting, bisecting and vivisecting the excesses and evils and barbarities of the 
of the Biden administration and the woke left and all of that. And uh, and I think the horrifying tragedy that may be unrolling here through this commission study and, of course, the refusal of Republicans to assent to a, a, a true bipartisan commission, uh, as Kevin McCarthy cravenly continues to seek uh, the House majority leadership position. Um, the, the, the tragedy here is that um, is that there's there's going to be a very improper reckoning that it's going to be easy. It's going to be too easy for people on the right to dismiss the evidence that was not only before their own eyes on January 6th, but is going to be before their own eyes as a result of this report. And that'll go to misbehaviors by Democrats on the committee who will say this is the worst thing that ever happened. And it's akin to, you know, you know, October 1917 or the Khmer Rouge, you know, they're going to they'll make these like deranged comparisons and go over the top and talk about, you know, and and so and so we will actually not have the kind of public confrontation with the facts of January 6th that could that might incline people on the right to revisit this question of whether or not they want their party and their movement to be some kind of coterminous tool of the Trump brand because that way lies madness like 2022 may be the election in which you know Biden gets his comeuppance from the voters and Democrats for 10,000 reasons, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But if Trump is on the ticket in 2024, uh, there are going to be plenty of people who are going to take account of what this commission said and what the facts are, uh, who are exactly the people that Republicans are going to need to win the election and oust the Democrats from the White House. And uh, their own refusal to reckon with what we're learning uh, is going to lead them right back to Trump and going to lead them right to a 306 to 222 electoral <laughs> defeat in, in 2024 to Biden or Harris or Buttigieg or Donald Duck, depending this, on which one is the Democratic nominee. There's also, though, I think there's a real problem with the public discussion about threats to democracy right now, right? I mean, and you you touch on it a little bit by talking about the hyperbole on the left, and we see that in you know, everything is anti-democratic now. Anything done, anything done by Republicans in the states is anti-democratic. So state legislatures that are duly elected, changing rules about voting or changing, you know, uh, different procedures about how they tally votes nationally uh, is seen as anti-democratic. And there were, you know, there's there's really a kind of it's not quite a conspiracy theory, but there's a there's a narrative that's been building on the left. Uh, even pre-January 6th about the anti-democratic uh, motivations of the Republican Party. And that actually does make it more difficult for those independent people in the middle who were very found January 6th kind of horrifying, but might be leaning conservative to, to have a discussion about what really is a threat to democracy. So I think January 6th was a threat to our democratic process. Absolutely horrifying. And if the Republican Party embraces that, they deserve to go down in flames for the next 20 years, in my opinion. But that's not the discussion we're having. We're having a discussion where anything that that a, a Republican leaning state legislature does in its own state with the support of the majority of its voters is also labeled anti-democratic. So the word is losing its meaning and its power. And that's that's also, I think, the way that um, people on the right who will see these emails um, can rationalize away the hypocrisy. Um, the The story is. Well, yeah, the coverage made us crazy. You know, it, it got everyone hysterical. We thought we we thought this was the end of the country because of the way it was being covered and the way it was being talked about. You know, it was only when the, the dust settled we realized it was no big deal. Uh, and, was, and they're being mean to them. They're being mean to them. They're being mean to these seven hundred people who trespassed on the Capitol building of the United States. I mean, it's again one of those things where you just wonder. It's the classic thing where. If this were reversed and those protesters had been Antifa or Black Lives Matter or something like that, what would Tucker Carlson be saying? You know what he would be saying. I don't even have to tell you what it was he would be saying. He would be calling for whipping them in the public square. He would be calling for using cattle prods on them. He would be calling, you know, he would be saying they would know what to do with them in Singapore, you know, like that. Like that's that's how this goes. 
And that's why, you know, that's why this has gotten to be such a problem. I do want to amplify uh, Christine's point about the um, uh, irresponsible democracy rhetoric, though. I mean, I've everyone in Washington is talking about the cover story of the Atlantic Monthly, Barton Gelman's uh, massive piece about, you know, the, the Trump coup is already uh, playing out. And then uh, David Leonhardt of the New York Times, uh, a columnist, uh, he wrote a morning newsletter uh, just the other day on the same topic, drawing from Gelman's piece, discussing all of the threats to democracy in the states. And I, look, I'm always looking for empirical evidence. So show me what's actually happening. And I have to say the evidence in both these pieces is remarkably thin. I mean, it has to do with, you know, what the, the Georgia law that was passed or the Texas law that was passed. Both of those laws, you know, they change things around the edges. In some cases, they liberalize voting procedures. Um, the most controversial part is George, the Georgia law allows um, people to, uh, to remove election officials. Uh, but of course, they've had trouble with long lines in Georgia uh, for, for years, uh, you know, and um, problems with election administration in Fulton County for years. So, you know, maybe they, they should make it easier to remove some of these election officials. Um, and then Landhart in his big column the other day about how democracy is about to uh, vanish says, well, you know, in, in the five, in five major states where this thing is playing out, uh, places like um, Texas and Georgia and Wisconsin and Arizona, um, Michigan, there were there were laws proposed allowing the political appointees to overrule the results of an election. And in all five states, the laws failed. <laughs> so what an anticlimax. I was like, come on, David, give me more. You know, and then the Gelman piece, too. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm not sure what there's the, the real threat to democracy is the fact that 15 percent of the people are just out of their minds. But of course, that's the constant threat to democracy. Right. I mean, that's not new. So, I mean, but that's a very judicious assessment and an and important principled assessment of the evidence before you. <clears throat> but I've been burned already once because I made a very similar assessment in November of 2020 when we were talking about when the coup that was being talked about very brazenly as a coup uh, was banal quotidian lawsuits that every campaign staffs up for and files to some degree or another, just as a matter of course. That's the sort of thing that I thought was insane, came out against it, said, listen, we're not criminalizing the conduct of, uh, of electioneering here, of, of, of running a race and then challenging the results when they're challengeable. That was smart and judicious. Behind the scenes, they were crafting memos to overturn the election. They were operating in ways that were nefarious, and uh, akin to something along the lines of, of a, a political coup. And it was a mistake on my part to assume that that was where it would stop. It didn't stop there. And we don't know how brazen these people are going to be in the years to come. Right now, what they're doing is operating within uh, a legislative uh, norms of legislative affairs. Fine. And we should say that. We shouldn't you know, get ourselves worked up into a froth over the absence of evidence. But that doesn't mean they're not going to do something incredibly brazen when they have the opportunity to do that. OK, now I want to do the uh, you know, the it's not fair because we're being judicious and other people aren't being judicious. We're sitting here on this conservative podcast, lamenting, lambasting, talking about the evils and sins and, and problems on, you know, what is what largely would be considered our own side. The crisis of democratic legitimacy as expressed by political activists and people in power uh, and using laws and populism to try to engineer different results from the ones that voters seem to want did not start with the Republicans and it did not start with Trump. If you go back to 2000, 2004, 2016, 2018, we had these this argument that it was illegitimate for the Supreme Court to stop the Florida recount when it stopped the Florida recount because basically Gore didn't win. Gore, under the principles that all recount rules in 2000 were only going to be legitimate if what they showed was Gore winning because of the confusion of the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County. And when the Supreme Court said, we cannot go on with this, this is not the proper way to handle this. 
the idea was that Bush was an illegitimate president. In 2004, Bush was an illegitimate reelected president because in Gambier, Ohio, the 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 uh, voting there were lines at the voting machines, and when when voting stopped at at 9 p.m. And that could have overturned the result. That was Christopher Hitchens's great contribution to American stability um, in the future. And then, of course, if you you know, every every argument that is being made about voting rights and expanding the franchise and all of this is also made in two forms by Democrats, one of which is. Uh, we need to make voting easier. Voting should be easier. It really should be easier. That's like a no brainer. Right. Okay. And the other is we need to pass these rules because Republicans have an unfair structural advantage in the literal composition of our republic. Rural states are empowered over over non-rural states. It's too easy to do this and it's too easy for them to get that. And the the big counties don't have enough sway and they're all located in too many, too few states. And so we need all kinds of radical changes to the way we do things. A national plebiscite, um, you know, at the end of the electoral college, uh, recomposition of the Senate, recomposition of the Supreme Court in order to change the very structural basis of the way our system works to favor one party over the other on the grounds that the system unfairly favors another party. And then, of course, you have Stacey Abrams in 2018 claiming that Georgia election law, as she never even said that it was improperly being followed, meant that she lost by 50,000 votes and that she was the legitimate and she was the legitimate victor of the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia. An election she lost by 50,000 votes. There has never been a reversal of an election in American history of 50,000 votes. There are 300 votes, once even 900 votes, not 50,000 votes. And she, she she is like one of the leading fundraisers and political leaders of the Democratic Party. This delegitimization of our democracy is bipartisan and it has different roots, different forms. It takes different ways, but it is all they cheat. We have to cheat back. That is. And so if you the fundamental basis of the people who want to do this is that the system is a cheat. So they are anti-American, they are anti-constitutional, and they are both sides eating away at the foundations of our Republican system. And I don't hear any Democrat, I don't hear any liberal commentator saying about their own nonsense what we are saying about Trump's nonsense. And John, you left out of that um, the fact that the left was laying the groundwork uh, in the run-up to the 2020 election to make the case that Trump will have cheated on the chance that he had won re-election. Uh, all the discussion of the uh, post office and uh, uh, yeah, Louis uh, Louis yeah. Joy, the yeah, who was yeah going to control the the mail in vote, right? Right, and and uh, chained up uh, uh, mailboxes, mailbox yeah, and all the rest of it. And 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 you know, I guarantee you, had Trump won, we would be involved in uh, a sort of you know countrywide. Uh, disastrous discussion akin to uh, the Russiagate uh, investigation about how Trump uh, had uh, stolen that election. Okay, so let me talk to you guys about Bolin Branch sheets. I'm really not going to be the one who talks to you about Bolin Branch sheets. In fact, it's going to be my colleague Noah, uh, because he has Bolin Branch sheets. And he and his wife like all of us, spend a third of our lives in bed. So pure organic cotton sheets from Bowling Branch make a truly special gift. They make highest quality sheets by doing things the right way, not the easy way. And look, if the gift you want is a better night's sleep, Bowling Branch never disappoints with the highest quality sheets, blankets, pillows, and throws. Plus their holiday packaging makes your gift look and feel special. Noah, tell me about your Bowling Branch sheets. I think I got them like a month ago. And we have not slept on anything else since they they go on they're there for a week. They come right off. They get washed. They go right back on because we can't sleep on anything else anymore. They are, as 
buttery as the copy suggests they are. They do get softer with every watch wash. And uh, I very much enjoy the color that they came in. My, my I chose pewter, which goes with my walls, which is not an easy color to find. And it's lovely. And the best part about them is they actually fit on a king size bed. You know, you move around during the middle of the night and all of a sudden the fitted sheet just sort of ejects off the side of the mattress and you end up on a naked mattress and it's kind of gross. Doesn't happen here. They are very high quality sheets. I can't recommend them highly enough. Husband and wife team Scott and Missy Tannen founded Ball and Branch to create a new standard in bedding by doing things the right way, not the easy way. They hold themselves to high standards across the board from sourcing pure organic cotton to putting workers' rights first. And it's not just their sheets that are made the right way. Their pillows, bath towels, and robes are too. Signature hem sheets are their all-time bestseller, beloved for so many reasons, like how they get softer with every single wash. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bowl and Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in special holiday packaging order by December 19th. That's five days from now for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Shop the holiday semi-annual sale from through tomorrow night and get 20% off at bowlandbranch.com. By tomorrow night, I mean Wednesday, December 15th. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Seaside for details. Exclusions may apply. Matt, uh, your piece in the January commentary, which we called or you called disaster of the Senate, uh, speaking of your perspective here from the basement, which, as we all know, in the Senate is a very exciting place because it has its own little choo-choo train in the Senate that carries senators inside the Capitol from their office buildings to the Senate chamber. You've seen it in the movie Advise and Consent. If you haven't seen Advise and Consent, you should see Advise and Consent. I've ridden on the choo-choo train many a time. I, I, I've ridden on the choo-choo train also, but I didn't, you know, I, 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 I want, I'm a populist and I want people yeah. to think that I don't. Participate. Well, maybe, maybe the Capitol rioters got down there. I don't know that the January 6th commission might want to look into that. If any of them Q, had ridden, they could have sold, like, they Q, could sell tickets. Yeah. If Q yeah. shaman had been like running the, the train, yeah. you know, like sort of like, Right. Like in a Lone rather Ranger. Than, thing rather rather than ransacking the, the Senate chamber. Yeah. Just take a yeah. ride on the train. Exactly. So uh, the piece is about newly minted Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, um, of course, became Majority Leader when the two Georgia Senate seats went Democratic. Uh, Chuck Schumer has been a fixture in Washington since the uh, late 70s or early 80s or whenever it was that he took Stephen Solars's seat in, in, in the House in, in Brooklyn and then became famous as being the, the, the famous thing said about him was that the most dangerous place in Washington to be was between Chuck Schumer and a microphone. Gets elected to Senate, knocks off uh, Al D'Amato 24 years ago, 23 years ago, and then climbs in the ranks. Um, this is a very weird job, the Senate majority leadership. And uh, there have been masters of it, like Mitch McConnell, who really is a master of, of course, the ultimate master of it was the master of the Senate, as so dubbed by Robert Caro. That's Lyndon Johnson. We now have almost a year of Chuck Schumer as majority leader of the Senate. How do you find his tenure? Well, I, I come down uh, negatively on uh, Schumer's ten tenure as leader so far, but mainly because of my discussions with several Republican senators over the past uh, month or so, uh, all uh, each of whom expressed his uh, disdain for Schumer's leadership um, in various ways. The one argument all of the Republicans uh, kept returning to was uh, time management. The Senate is very unusual. It operates according to two different calendars. There's, there's the legislative calendar, which handles the laws, but there's also the executive calendar because the Senate's responsible for all of the appointments. One of the key jobs of a majority leader is to manage those calendars to make sure um, uh, all the choo-choo trains are running on time. And this is something that uh, Schumer is spectacularly bad at. You know, he's very good at uh, press. Uh, he's also, you know, uh, he's also famous, John, for inventing the Sunday press conference that he would give on Sundays because he knew that it was such a slow news day, typically, that he would be insured coverage in the Monday New York papers. Um, so he's great at press. He's great at candidate recruitment. You know, he was really behind um, the uh, major uh, Democratic victory of 2006. Um, he played a major role in recruiting uh, senators like uh, John Tester of Montana, for example, um, uh, who could uh, Jim, the former Senator Jim Webb in Virginia, who could appeal uh, to a, to the center as well as to some of the left. Um, but when it comes to organization, uh, when it comes to um, 
kind of uh, institutional knowledge, um, Schumer has, is is not very good at all. And uh, if you just look at the past couple of weeks, he was really rescued uh, on the debt ceiling, for example, by Mitch McConnell. Um, and there it's um, uh, it's McConnell, uh, as much as he wants to kind of jam up the works of the Senate Democratic uh, majority or, uh, you know, 51 with uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president's tie breaking vote. McConnell, it seems to me, is overriding concern is preservation of the Senate filibuster. And so that is what rescued uh, Schumer on the debt ceiling. Um, but he still he still hasn't passed this major defense bill, uh, which has been passed every year for the past 60 years, uh, rarely as late as, as they've gone uh, now. And that's because he just doesn't know how to manage the process. And if he still has Build Back Better to worry about as well. So. Again, here's what, what's interesting is that um, nobody wants these jobs anymore, right? That's part of the whole platform, you know, the House and Senate being a platform rather than being a molder, the Yuval Levin's point about the institutions in Washington uh, that, you know, people wanted to climb and become leaders and majority. And, and these are boring, hard, boring organizational jobs, very detail-oriented, involving trying to come to consensus, holding your temper, being tough, but not being too tough. Harry Reid before McConnell, uh, you know, others like it, this is a very complicated job that requires more bipartisan action than any other job in Washington because of the Senate's cloture rules, more ability to deal with larger personalities, every one of whom thinks that he is a king and all of that. And there's no way to know whether somebody's going to be good at it until they do it. Um, there are various jobs like this. I will say this, that like editing an, a manuscript is another one of the reasons I know about this is there's just no way to know whether someone can be a good editor until they start editing something because there's no cast of mind. There's, it's impossible to say what it is that makes a good editor. Similarly, it's difficult to say what would make a good leader of the House. It's much easier, by the way, to be the, the Speaker of the House because the House's rules and the House's traditions effectively make the Speaker a version of the Prime Minister in a parliamentary system. Like, as long as he can, as long as that person, female or male, can corral the majority, they can rule the roost and they don't really need anything else. And it, it's going to mean a lot that Schumer is not good at this job. It may mean that Schumer, a better Schumer, would have said to Biden in May, we got to stop with this Build Back Better thing. It's going to kill us. Let us narrow our focus. We'll do it. We'll do infrastructure. We'll break up Build Back Better into seven bills and try to pass a bunch of them individually and really put Republicans' feet to the fire on the individual ones because they're polling at 65% even in their states. Let's see what happens there. He didn't do that. And he's still fantasizing. He's still saying it is the 14th of December. It is still his line that there's going to be a vote on Build Back Better by the end of 2021, which is A, insane, and B, he don't want that vote if it comes because I don't know how much semaphore Joe Manchin is going to have to do in front of Chuck Schumer's face any more than he's done to say he is not voting for this bill. There's just this detail that came out about how if the bill, if if the Build Back Better bills provisions were fully extended, meaning they were actually paid for by the terms that were originally involved. It would cost $3 trillion or add $3 trillion to the deficit as opposed to the, nobody even knows what this number is, 1.75, 2.2. It's really not clear what that number is, 2.2 trillion. Manchin said, I'm spending a trillion five and no more. That's what he said. He says it, he says it over and over again. And the poll came out of West Virginia voters that says 65% of them are against it or think that it will, it will, it will create inflation and 14% are for it. Why is he saying he wants this bill? Why is he saying there's going to be a vote on this bill? If he gets his wish, he will take the Biden presidency down as a nice big Christmas present for our for our newly established president. But he, 
the the rhetoric he's been using around it is also shows both being he's both out of touch and and seemingly there's a whiff of desperation because he's trotted out the children right he keeps talking about the child tax credit he's like think of the children who will slip into poverty i mean this is a this is a tax credit that we know from polling uh, months ago most people are like eh about it like the, the, you know there's not this huge demand for this tax credit right now people are concerned about inflation they're they're still concerned about covid they're concerned about supply chain issues they're concerned about about bread and butter issues. And that's not really one of them. And yet he keeps, he's bringing out the children as the human shield. And I always see in that whenever a political leader does that, Hillary was the, was the master of this technique. Whenever she was in trouble, she'd start talking about the children. When any politician abstracts the children, you know, they're, they're spinning for some reason. I think that's what he's been doing for a week. It's just interesting because we, we, we really do have a sort of competency crisis at the top levels of our leadership in the United States, Biden is not a competent president. Schumer does not appear to be a competent Senate majority leader. Pelosi is a competent speaker of the house to some degree, but again, like had this three, three and a half months of Michigas over the infrastructure bill that a stronger, better and, 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 and more resolute leader could have, uh, could have undercut literally by saying to Biden, we can't do it this way. We're going to do it this way. And you go and tell those people that I can't convince that, you know, that the future of the Democratic Party is on the line. The future of their influence is on the line. Let's see how they like it if they're in the minority in 2023. It is not fun to be in the minority in the House, period. Like, don't do the things that are going to put you in the minority. But she didn't do that either. So there is a massive competency crisis. The only person who seems to be competent remains Mitch McConnell. Oh, Kevin McCarthy is not competent either, as we also can see. So there are like five leading figures in American politics in Washington, and four of them don't know what they're doing. And the paradox is for Schumer, the more competent he is or the more successful he is, the likelier it is that he won't be majority leader after next year's election. So, you know, even if he does get Build Back Better through somehow, and, you know, Christine mentions the child tax credit, well, you know, that's on Manchin's chopping block. He wants to get rid of it. And this is so Schubert's saying it's the most important part of the bill. It's what Manchin wants to get rid of. Meanwhile, a lot of people aren't talking about there's the Manchin concern with the deficit number and with inflation, but there's also a big fight going on in the Senate Democratic Caucus on the uh, SALT uh, deduction with the huge giveaway in the House bill uh, to some of these blue states, uh, which Republicans will accurately portray as a, a tax cut for the rich in, uh, in next year's campaign. Well, there's some Democrats who want to uh, lower uh, the threshold of the deduction and others who are rebelling against it. But um, let's say it, let's say somehow Schum uh, Manchin folds in the end on a much smaller bill and Schumer is able to claim a success. Well, He's just added another arrow to the quiver of the Republicans who are already enthusiastic uh, about running next year uh, to take the Congress back. You know, if you like Chuck Schumer, and, and who doesn't really? I mean, nobody I know likes him, but somebody must like him. And, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not even talking about uh, ideologically, by the way, but if you like him, it's the holidays. I know. I know Hanukkah's over with, but, you know, it's the holidays and even he deserves a gift. So how about a gift that keeps on giving would give him comfort and joy all year long, even as he has precious little of it going forward, a gift that looks as good as it feels, a gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive he'll be at work. Give Chuck Schumer the gift of an X chair. Look, I, I love mine. Uh, and I'm generous enough to want to give it to somebody whom I find politically offensive. That's how much I love it. It's by far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. And it's probably also the coolest looking piece of furniture I own. Not only is X chair the world's greatest office chair, but with its patented LMX technology, it doubles as a massage chair and can either cool or warm your back. Can Chuck Schumer's current office chair do that? I don't think so. So now is the purchase perfect time to purchase an X chair. Buy early, buy now, and here's X-Chair's holiday gift to you or to Chuck Schumer. Save $100 off your X-Chair just by purchasing it at xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and save xchaircommentary.com. Um, so let's uh, finish up on the 
on on Omicron, I think it is now fair to say that everything that we have been worried about and concerned about this, the temptation, I'm not now talking about the political ideological temptation or the sort of the technocratic temptation to control everything, but the theoretical temptation to continue to redefine the pandemic away from what we need this to do is is to move, which is what I think was the general consensus position. It needs to move from being a pandemic to an endemic human condition or an endemic human fact that uh, we are going to have this this COVID-19 or some variant of it around for a very long time. We We need it to get less fatal, less dangerous, less this, and then we're going to have to learn to live with it and go back to normal. And I think it's very clear that uh, the political and social and um, uh, medical and epidemiological pressure is now on to say that we need to treat every variant of this as though it is the original coming of COVID. And that what we need to do is eradicate COVID as opposed to figuring out how to get to a place where we can treat it so that we don't get very sick from it if we get it and that we need to live with it. And uh, we have New York, California, Britain, Israel, other places treating this as though it is Ebola because it's more contagious than the, the other variants. And therefore, it's like Ebola. The fact that it is way less uh, harmful I mean, we are getting to a point at which we all anyone ever says is, well, we, we need more data. Well, OK, it's been like five, six weeks of data now, and we have one confirmed death in the on the planet Earth. I was very sad to see Boris Johnson, who uh, was in an interview, I guess, yesterday or two days ago, said, well, there's a lot of talk about how Omicron is uh, more mild. Let's set that. Let's let's put that aside. And 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 talk about um, how 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 easily it spreads. You cannot put that aside. If if we put that aside, we can then we can talk about the common cold as as a as a as a planet changing disaster too. That is part of the puzzle. That is a key part of the puzzle. You cannot put that aside. The thing about um, acting as if uh, COVID zero is now the goal is that no one is stating it exactly. Um, they're just acting like it. So this is, we remain in this sort of no man's land where we don't, we don't, no, we don't, no one says why we're, we're doing the crazy things we're doing. We're just doing them and it's the smart thing and you just go with it. And I'm a broken record on this. I'm sorry. Abe, yeah, I'm no, go, go. <laughs> John, but there uh, is a false consensus that has been established in certain communities about COVID. Some communities are much more, uh, risk averse and impose these mandates and pretend to follow them. <laughs> and some communities have just moved entirely on from the pandemic as though it doesn't even exist anymore. And that's sort of a status quo that is holding for now, but it is untenable uh, in part because people who most people don't like this. And I'll give you evidence of it. Axios has a poll today with that I think crystallizes the problem for this administration. It is not Build Back Better agenda. It's not even really inflation, although that's a very serious pocketbook issue. It is a sense of hopelessness about the pandemic. A combined 46% of Americans now expect that they will, it will be more than a year or never before they can return to their normal lives. A plurality of people believe normal life is no longer possible. This administration ran for and won the White House on an explicit promise to tame this pandemic. They failed. They have failed without an ounce of humility. They consistently move the goalposts and they are inculcating a sense of hopelessness in their voters who will no longer be all so enthusiastic to tune to, to you know head to the polls and affirm this their support for this administration, but their opponents most certainly will. And all Joe Biden has to do is look at the 72% of everybody in America who is vaccinated and call it a victory. That's it. Say, look at this. 72% of Americans of all ages are doing this thing that we want them to do. 30% are, most of them are in a, a, a statistically negligible risk profile demographically. We won. Ta-da. You're welcome. We, but I, you know, I just want to add, we haven't seen anything yet in terms of um, Omicron panic, uh, 
there is a piece in Axios today quoting a senior Biden official who says a tidal wave is coming. It's going to be fast. It's going to be it's going to be less severe. Yes, but there's going to be plenty of 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 hospitalizations, a tidal wave. So they're getting ready for like, you know, March 2020 mode over this thing. You know, as this is going on, if you like look at as as we all do, I guess, sort of the daily, you know, chronicle of of actual cases and hospitalizations and deaths in the New York Times, we're only we're talking about Omicron, Omicron, Omicron. Delta is still ravaging. The Delta faded and is now coming back. We are back to 1,200 or 1,300 deaths a day. Uh, Caseloads are up. And that is not Omicron in the United States. This is still Delta. And it's like we can't even pay attention to the right thing that is, you know, like we're, 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 we're um, you know, anticipating the, you know, the next hot thing. Like it's like, you know, it's opening in two. I can't believe it. It's like Spider-Man No Way Home. Any minute, Omicron will open and it's going to wash everything else away. But that and, would be a good thing. Jo- Dr. No, Anthony Fauci I, was asked about this directly, was asked whether maybe it wouldn't be preferable for a far less severe and more contagious variant of this disease to overtake and supplant all the Delta variant, right? Would that be a good thing? He says that's a very dangerous idea. It's an extremely dangerous idea to even talk about something like that. You know, false sense of indignation here, projecting all this, you know, theatrical indignation. But why? Didn't say why. Why? That would that wouldn't because be a bad people thing. People will get sick. People will get sick. The whole point is, honestly, we shouldn't care if people get sick. We care if they get hospitalized, and we care if they die. But we shouldn't care if they get sick. Nobody cares if somebody else gets sick. This is crazy. We have now moved into a position in which the national health profile of the country from a virus has now become a matter of individual public policy and the individual restraint of individual liberties. And this is madness until Omicron turns out to be fatal. The imposition of changes in our lives with no evidence yet that we are getting there. Okay, Matt, you're... Well, I just want to say it's madness in liberal-dominated institutions or states Mm -hmm. where the rest of my panel lives. Um, But for much of the country, the pandemic's over. You You got your vaccines, you got your booster... And by the way, if you got your booster, you're uh, you're basically, you know, it's like you're carrying a, one of those shields from Dune against the Omicron. You know, it stops it with the energy. Um, and they're trying to move on with their lives. Red states, right, of course, have uh, banned um, the mask mandates in the schools, right, uh, or made them optional. Um, and, and so uh, my former writer, Matthew Walther, had this piece in The Atlantic. He lives in um, Three Rivers, Michigan. And uh, he said he wrote in the Atlantic. He said no one, no one acts like the pandemic is going. It's something that's happening in media, in liberal dominated institutions. So you see this ridiculous coverage in the media. You see it in uh, states like California and uh, New York and New York City with De Blasio. Um, and then, of course, the problem is you have the president <laughs> who, who is uh, just he's being over. Oh, he's allowing Anthony Fauci to run his pandemic response. And I think it's causing him tremendous self-harm uh, because he could, you know, it's, no, it's right. He could just say, look, it's time. when the New York Times editorial board has a l- lengthy e- editorial this past Sunday saying, it's time to just accept the fact that we're going to have to live with this. And by the way, those masks, they're going to have to be optional now. I mean, you have all the uh, permission you, you, you could want as a Democratic president to say, we need to move to a place where we just accept the reality of COVID as an endemic disease. And, and there, Christine, Christine, I was just gonna say, but there's a way in which that, you know, we talk about culture wars a lot on this podcast, but there's a way in which there's a culture war that plays out with this, where, you know, there's a condition when people have like general anxiety disorders or have had experience of trauma, they have what's called hypervigilance, right? They have problems going Forward, even when their lives normalize, not always being on high alert and it affects their you know, immune system response, it, it affects their nervous system. It's, it's trouble and it takes 
often takes people years of therapy and help to get through this. But there's a sense in which I, I listen to and watch what's happening in blue state America with, with regard to the pandemic. I'm like, they're in hypervigilance mode now. The, the threat is receding, but their, their vigilance is so high and it's been so high because of the trauma they've experienced from this pandemic or the fear and anxiety. It's gonna take a lot for them to let it go. And in some ways it's just self-reinforcing. And I agree with Matt, the president bears responsibility for that hypervigilant way of living life because even if he's not articulating it that clearly, his behavior, his actions, his administration's response does endorse that. Noah, That's fascinating. Let me, let, Noah, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this because we, sure. we were talking about this just before the show. So we have Kathy Hochul, the newly minted governor of New York, place puts on this relatively complicated indoor mask mandate that any business that doesn't have a vaccine requirement, everyone has to be masked indoors. And California has now, as of tomorrow, established an indoor mask mandate everywhere, regardless of anything. And then yesterday, Hochul suspends the enforcement of her mandate at the county level, meaning any county in the uh, in, in New York state. And I think there are 33, but I could be misremembering. Um, I, I'm sure that's too low. Anyway, any county is permitted to use the state principles to enforce a mask mandate if it's county executive or whatever wants to. So like New York County, which is Manhattan, that can you can enforce it in Staten Island, which is Richmond County. Maybe you don't enforce it and there's no statewide. So is maybe this Omicron thing is all a um, wild act of hypocrisy. Maybe. Well, that's possible. We should entertain <laughs> that one. Um, yeah, the uh, the mask mandate is not going to be universally enforced in New York because it's unenforceable. The same is the true in California, California, where if you read down to the eight or ninth paragraph in the New York Times story around it, you find out that places like Los Angeles, East Los East LA, which is experiencing a high volume of cases now, has always had a mask mandate, but very low compliance when it comes to masking, because compliance is optional. This is an optional mandate. We are forced to endure the contortion of the English language to now entertain that phrase. Um, and it's because what Christine described is true, this is no longer about public health. Public health is ancillary to this. This is a contest between competing psychological dispositions and differing theories of social organization that are incompatible and will be decided at the ballot box. Red states have decided right. it already. Blue states want to, they like this to a certain degree. We but don't unfortunately, know the rest of the country gets to weigh in because the president is very firmly aligned with one camp, not the other. And the rest of the country will determine whether this continues. And if every indication we have from 2020 and 2021 is that people want to vote themselves out of this thing and they will I, continue to do that, they will vote for the party that gives the, them the option out. I'm very struck by what Hochul did. I'm very struck by what Hochul did because what she was doing was saying, my liberal base needs me to put on a mask mandate. My sense of self-preservation in a complicated state in which I have no political base as I am just installed here from being lieutenant governor and there is a credible, theoretically credible Republican candidate running for governor, although he had to step aside for a while to deal with cancer treatments, but there might be another one. I'm scared. I'm scared of putting on a mask mandate because I want to be governor in 2022. I thought I was clear because my main rival for the governorship, Tish James dropped out and that looked like I was then free and clear. And then this Omicron thing happens and I'm going to have to be tough. So I'm being tough, but I'm also not being tough. And they're trying, she's trying to split the baby. And the fact that she wants to split the baby tells me that this idea that the blue states want this and the red states don't, and the blue state voters are going to support hawkishness on this and the red state voters aren't that this is a lie that blue state voters are going to be as enraged about what happened over the last two years as red state voters and they are there's no one to punish now even if they're not sitting a politicians and in red and in blue states those sitting politicians are all democrats even and if, even you if they're not there's a, a serious enthusiasm gap that favors the doves over the hawks even if they even if they do like this thing, the enthusiasm is on the side of the doves. 
And I just, can I just point out, cause it bugged me. You guys probably didn't notice, but I did. Hogel gave a press conference where she wore a necklace that it's scrawled in gold. It says vaxxed. And I was like, that's perfection. <laughs> we have reached peak kind of performative COVID. I'm sorry. The governor's wearing a, a gold accessory that says vaxxed. It was just, uh, there was something that about That is insufficient <laughs> unto the day. First of all, does it say double vaxxed? It should right. say boosted. Vaxxed and I boosted? It should now say boosted because I don't think that vaxxed you even need a charm bracelet. anymore. You can keep adding your boosts to it. Excellent. That's right. That's right. That's what we need is a nice uh, uh, Helen Ficalora charm bracelet that just has each, you know, one, two, B, Omicron, whatever. This is the mad world in which we're living. And I there, I'm going to say it again. There is an approaching political cataclysm, and I don't really understand how it's going to work. And I don't really think, despite Democratic and liberal hopes and wishes and dreams and whatever, that it will, that what the revelations of January 6th and what went on January 6th are going to have the slightest impact on the midterm elections. Um and the, that is where the cataclysm is going to be. But I do, again, think that uh, this is a, that the stuff that Liz Cheney came up with yesterday is a slow acting poison that can might have terrible consequences for Republicans past this election, which is going to be about inflation and COVID and the fact that Democrats are in charge everywhere. And we have 8 percent inflation, 7 percent of whatever it is maybe higher as we go forward. And we have this incredibly inefficient, crazy, you know, uh, incomprehensible COVID response. Matt Continetti, thank you so much. Everybody go to commentary.org and read his piece, Disaster of the Senate, and then go to Amazon and pre-order The Right, his history of the conservative movement in America. For Abe, Christina Noah, and John Podhortz, keep the candle burning. <laughs>